Welcome to the Blaze Podcast, put together by Blaze Incorporated. My name is Onyema Odeze. Today we'll be talking about Afrocentrism in the beauty sector. And uh, in the previous session, we already explained what Afrocentrism is all about. So today we'll be looking at it from a more practical perspective. How do we actually kickstart all this and implement it? So I'll open the floor up to the two of you. So I think I'll start with Dr. Lape. So just tell us a bit about yourself and um, your work at HNL and 3D View Studio. Okay, hello everyone. My name is Lakwe Sale. I'm an architect, uh, designer, and probably sustainability promoter. We run our own firm in Abuja here with my partners. We have full services in interior and landscaping as well as architectural design. And we are very passionate about Afrocentric design. Um, we have been practicing that as much as possible for a long time and then which finally culminated in our building, uh, Greenhouse, which is located in Kado in Abuja. And um, we are looking forward to a situation where in Nigeria and uh, Africa generally, the uh, African design is championed, becomes the norm instead of the exception and is well understood by, you know, the society. Okay, thank you very much for the brief introduction. So I will head over to Madilo Kumaba. So tell us a bit about yourself and also what CPD Africa, of course, that stands for Community Planning and Design Initiative. So tell us a bit about what CPD Africa is all about and also your work currently at CPD Africa. Okay, all right, sure. Thanks, Onyeba. Um, a pleasure to be here. So thrilled that we have connected. So I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to working with you in the future. So many great things I can already see happening. And Architect Black Bay, uh, fabulous to be on here with you. Um, you definitely are a champion in Afrocentric architecture. So <laughs> hello, everyone. Uh, yes, my name is Madeli Okumabwa, and I am the founder of CPDI Africa which has uh, stands for the Community Planning and Design Initiative Africa. I am an Africanist. That's kind of how I des describe myself, an Africanist, a cultural designer, right? Hmm. I'm going to come up with a new word for uh, architecture since um, it's kind of been taken by the current profession <laughs> and, <laughs> and turned into something that the people, African people can't claim like they used to, right? Most Africans were architects because we designed and built our own communities. We didn't have to have degrees and licenses and all of that. I mean, what degrees did Imhotep have? Let's not go back that far, right? Um, so I could call myself a cultural architect, but professionally, my degrees are in design, urban planning, and African studies. So I kind of come to the story from a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary uh, perspective. My focus is on Afrocentric architecture, right? So like I said, I'm the founder of CPTI Africa. And what we do is try to come up with new design languages that are African inspired, that are culturally and environmentally sustainable. Our goal is to kind of pick back up from where Africa left off in her evolution, pick back up, take elements that are still relevant in our communities and our societies, take those elements and begin to create new architectural languages. 
And so we do that through competitions. We invite designers from around the world to join us in the conversation, right? So take traditional African architecture, um, ethnic group by ethnic group, and then come up with new prototypes. So we do that. Uh, we launched the very first Afrocentric architecture competitions. Now it's kind of like popular, everyone's doing it. So we're excited about that because there's so much work to be done. So we need everybody to get in. Um, so we started the conversation through competitions and now um, we're doing it through the academy, right? So now we have a school called um, uh, the CPD Africa Global Studio for African-Centered Architecture. It's online, it's on demand, so designers and lovers of, Afri of, of architecture from around the world can simply log on, take our classes, get certificates in African-centered architecture, um, and then begin to use that in their practices, um, in their scholarship at school, um, and to make design policy. So that's what I do, that's who I am. I'm based in Abuja and Atlanta, and um, today I'm sitting in Abuja, so I'm excited once again to be Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for the detailed introduction about what you do and also about CPDI. So I will take it a bit further about CPDI. Of course, like you mentioned, you already have a number of initiatives on how to you know, not just promote awareness about Afrocentrism, but also see it being implemented across the continent. So let's take, for example, when you visit places like Tokyo, um, Paris and the likes, you always have a feeling of where you belong. I mean, their environment cannot reflect their lifestyle, their culture and all that, which is not quite the case in Africa, especially in our urban cities. So how does um, CPDI Africa, what's the plan to fast track the, you know, reflection of Afrocentrism in the African built environment through your various activities? What plans do you have for the future? Okay, all right. So we have a couple of things. So the, the, the first thing, I'd say let's start with the last thing I said, which is the studio, right? um, the school, the academy. What we know is that, you know, architects are going to design and build what they're taught in school, right? Like I said in, in the beginning, we all knew it was a community effort, you know, whatever ethnic you're in, if it's time for someone to build a house, everybody comes together, um, children, adults, the elderly, and they make the bricks, they collect the materials, they look out to them, um, and then they design and build. Everybody kind of knew what designs worked for their community, what they were used to, what was popular, what fits their lifestyle. Today, everybody has to go to school, and whatever you learn in school, that is Eurocentric schools, schools in Africa that were set up, established by the former colonial uh, rulers, and so the curriculums that we are using are Eurocentric. So when we go to school as Africans or Black people in the diaspora, we learn American architecture, we learn European, British, French, whatever it is. So when we come out, we create architecture or built environments that are inspired by what we learned in school. That is why when you drive around in, in different countries on the continent or in black spaces in the diaspora. You don't see an architectural language that speaks of our culture and our heritage. Like you mentioned, when you drive around in Asia or you're in Holland or wherever you look around and you see their architecture, because that's what they are, they are learning in school and so they are building it. So what happened to us? What, if we're going to change it, we value culture, 
we know we value it in our cuisine. We, we value it in the way we name ourselves. I mean, my name is Madeline. That is name is like where you are, Nima, right? Though some of us have English names or French names or whatever. But if we if we value it in our names, in our food, I, my favorite food is a is a Eddie come now, right? I like spaghetti. I like French toast, whatever. Yeah. But if we value it in our fashion, right? I can wear a Western suit. I can also wear something Nigerian inspired. If we value it in our art, we love other people's art as well. But if we love it in our music, in our dance, in all of our aesthetics, we can also love it in our built environment. So in order to do that, we're gonna to have to bring African architecture to the classroom. Once we are taught, Right? Remember how we used to design and build. Not saying that we start building mud buildings everywhere with thatch roofs. What is the modern interpretation of that? Right? You can only master that and develop that in the incubator. And the incubator is your classroom. So when we bring this conversation back to the studio, we will start graduating architects who are masters in African master thesis. When I say that the pyramids were just the beginning, I mean the pyramids were just the beginning, right? We're supposed to have gone far from there, but we understand Africa's story, the rise, the fall, uh, colonization and all of that. So CPDI's vision is to, again, like I said, pick back up, bring that conversation to the classroom. Afrocentric curriculums need to be developed, not just Eurocentric. And in Europe right now, that is the talk, is to decolonize the curriculums. Everyone is talking about hearing other people's voices now, it's not just European, but the Africans, right? So we envision a time when you're graduating architects, urban planners, realtors, engineers, construction specialists, interior designers, graduating them and they are masters of their language, ethnic group by ethnic group. Start out in Yorubas, go to Indebele, go to the Luo in Kenya, come back to the folks in Morocco. They are masters in that language. So when you start driving around those spaces in the future, you will see architecture that tells you, oh, I'm in the land of the Igbo. Oh, I'm in the land of the Lupe. I'm in the land of the Ishekiri. Yeah? So that's where CPD is. Yeah, definitely. Going. Yeah, we, we definitely want to be leaders in that conversation in helping to change uh, the curriculum. So, so that's what we're doing at our design studio, at our global studio. Yeah. All right. Okay. So basically, you have a number of um, programs online. So can you just enlighten us a bit about how, you know, what can enroll for this program and also what's the, the curriculum okay. looks like? Uh, just a bit. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Very easy. You start by going to cpdiafrica.org. If you go to .com, you will see um, our archives. But go to cpdiafrica.org and um, you will see a list of the courses that are available now. So we add new courses every month. You don't have to be, you know, an architect, you know, a graduate, a licensed person. You can be anybody who is a student of architecture. You are looking for that scholarship. Um, you can be in art, you can be in urban planning, any of the allied professions. So you see what class that's you know, interesting to you. It could be on art, it could be on architecture, it could be on aesthetics, materials, sustainability. You just take the class, you pay, and you sit and you watch at your own time, right? You download and you um, take the class. The classes are very um, straightforward. They are in six modules. 
So you get to see the um, professor um, who is an expert in the topic. They are speaking for about 30 minutes and then their slide deck, their presentation um, that accompanies their lecture is also made available. So you just take your time, go through the six modules, do whatever assignment that there is. And if you complete three CPDI courses, you get the certificate in African-centered architecture. Very simple, very straightforward. Okay, thank you very much for the insights. I've watched you in, in a number of different programs where you've mentioned that you know, as Africans, we had an opportunity to redefine our, our system, our education system and all that. At the end of the colonial era, I mean, when we got independence, basically. But that did not happen. So when you look at the academic curriculum or the education system, you see that a lot of the content is still you know, European focused, Eurocentric to an extent. So how do you think we can actually fast track, you know, implementing this uh, Afrocentrism into our education system and make it less Eurocentric? So what practical steps do you think we can take to decolonize the curriculum more or less? It has to be a conscious decision, right? That's what I always say, that it's going to have to be a conscious decision on our part. You know, those of us that are in the academy, those who are managing the different university commissions, country by country, Ghana, Senegal, just one by one, Caribbean, right? Haiti, Jamaica, African-American community. It's going to have to be a conscious decision by the policy makers, those in, in, in academia, and then of course the people, the end users, the citizens. All of us are going to have to decide that we do want um, a built environment or our communities or our societies to reflect who we are. The word that most people like to hear is affordable, right? How do we make our housing, our commercial buildings, our hospitals, everything that we need, how do we make them affordable? Because even though African people are the wealthiest people on the planet, right? Everything is still coming out of Africa. Africa is still feeding everybody, except herself to an extent, right? We are the, wealth <laughs> we are the wealthiest, but because of how history and capitalism and so many other things, so how they have led Africa to where we are. We are not reaping the benefits of all that we have. Other people are making money off of our resources and our labor, right? So we happen to not be the wealthiest people. So whatever we're talking about ends up having to be affordable. If it's not affordable, we can't afford it, right? So we as a people, as a community, we have to decide that we want a change and that what we want our children to be learning in school, and you say I'm always going to come back to school because that truly is the beginning. That's the root of the issue, right? We have to decide that what we are teaching the future generations is something that's going to help us as a community, all of our societies when they graduate. So when you come out, what are you thinking about, right? How are you thinking you should have spent your 12 years and then graduate school learning about the problems in your, in your society so that you can find solutions to them. That's what I think education is about. So when you graduate, you're not coming to join to make, to make the problem worse, you're coming with solutions, right? And so the first thing I would do is start with changing the school um, curriculums, bring ourselves to the academy. And then you're going to graduate thinking people, like Americans say, woke people. 
right? You come out and you're not looking just to chase the dollar and the bling bling. You're coming out to improve the situation that you're finding when you graduate. You'll be asking questions like, ah, I don't have a job. I haven't gotten a job since I graduated. So I had to go with some deviant practices. No, when you come out, you know why there are no jobs. You know why um, the, system is, the system is set up to where you can't have a job. Africa has not industrialized. Nobody wants to allow Africa to industrialize because then we won't need anybody else. We'll just be uh, finishing the products that we need ourselves on our own continent. So you will come out of school knowing that. And so you come out of school knowing that you have to create the job. You have to get those natural resources and finish them to sell to yourselves on the continent and to sell to others. Yes, it might cause some political problems somewhere, but um, you come out knowledgeable and then you begin to do things that you need to do to not make the situation worse. Now everybody's talking about sustainability. We are destroying the planet. Ozone layer is going, CO2 emissions. All those things that Africans would have never done to the, to the planet because we were organic and we were sustainable. So what does that mean? So you will now be a master of that. When you come out, you will know what materials to specify and which ones not to specify. Right? I could go on and on. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, definitely I get it. It's, it's, it boils back to everybody. Something that we, we ourselves need to be ready to actually you know, acknowledge that we need to induce the Afrocentrism into the education system and not waiting for anybody to do it for us. So that's quite an insightful one. So um so let me just kind of slide into the slide into the conversation. Okay. Okay, yeah, I have two questions for you. So I'll start with the first one. The first one I have is that I mean recently I was at the greenhouse uh, project, which obviously is one of the few Afrocentric pieces of architecture in Nigeria. So can you just enlighten us on the Afrocentric and sustainable features of the project? You know. Okay, yes, uh, so greenhouse, like you said, um in terms of being Afrocentric, right, and being sustainable, for us, in many ways, is one and the same. In that, the key to sustainability is not just about um, your green badges or your LEED certification. It's actually about utilizing, basically, the, let's, say, let's say the essence of sustainability, basically, is about utilizing what you have to the utmost value without increased or external you know, input. So using our local materials in innovative ways and also still being cost effective and still creating a modern environment because whatever you're creating must be able to deal with the modern day activities that it's required to meet. And so for greenhouse, apart from the uh, aesthetics, which you see clearly from outside, we used the Hausa mural decoration on the walls. Uh, both in exterior and interior, we minimize the use of paint and uh, and cement and POP screening by mixing the the exterior doesn't have any paint. We simply used cement and then we that we, we put a pigment in the cement to give it a color that looks natural, that looks like our mud walls or our clay walls of um, of old, and so. In appearance, we were able to create that look. But then another thing that we now did was that instead of using for our balustrades, instead of using metal work for our balustrades or stainless steel, obviously imported from China, we used bricks. We used compressed earth bricks. 
Now, the reason why compressed earth bricks were, was not used throughout the whole building was because when you are using compressed earth bricks, you must know the weight. The weight is quite different from your regular block. And because you're using more of it to cover up the square meters, because the block is bigger, you end up getting quite a bit of load. And so if your building is not designed originally to carry that load, you can't just decide to input it as a retrofit. And so our building was already existing. We started from the first floor, which for us, again, like you said, is still sustainable because we're talking about adaptive reuse. We're taking an abandoned building and now, you know, building it up and reusing it in this way. And so we decided to use compressed earth bricks where we were sure that the building could carry the weight. We, we asked the structural engineer to actually calculate the, the load that was going to be carried on those cantilevered and we use it on our, on our balconies. So that's another aspect uh, that we can call Afrocentric. Uh, another thing we did, like I said, we minimized always the use of imported materials. And so in the building, you don't see a lot of tiling, ceramic tiles, porcelain tiles, which, as you know, most are imported in Nigeria. But apart from that, even the uh, embodied energy in uh, porcelain tiles or clay tiles is also quite high because of the firing process, the kiln process. And so First of all, we used the terrazzo floor, which you know is marble chippings, which is the waste from marble manufacturing or production. We use that with concrete, and that is our floor, terrazzo floor. And then where necessary, yes, we had to use some tiles, but not in too many places. We used it for the skirting, and we used it for uh, this, because terrazzo is not actually, it's not widely available. Most, most factories that used to produce the tiles of it have shut down, and so we couldn't produce the skirting, but we were able to do the floors. We now used uh, wooden treads on our staircase treads. So that alone, again, locally sourced wood, using our local carpenters, we seasoned the wood. We actually kept it on site for many months to allow it to acclimatize to the, is it micro or macro environment? Uh, Madly, you can advise me. Uh, I believe it is the <laughs> micro environment. So well, that's one thing that um, if you don't have a kiln and you don't have professionals that will be able to season wood for you when you want to use seasoned season wood, you can keep it, you know, they stack them. There's a way they stack them. You can always check these things online. There's a way they stack them neatly on a site. So if you give it some months, it will actually acclimatize to that site. And so you don't find warping. You don't find any kind of natural breaks happening because of, you know, uh, lack of seasoning. And so that's what we did and we were able to use it for the entire treads for the building. Another thing we did was eliminated the POP completely throughout. We didn't have POP suspended ceiling anywhere. We have uh, our concrete floors, which we painted a nice matte black. By the time we juxtaposed that with uh, our white uh, track lights, it came out really nice. And everybody, honestly, that's one of the first comments we get when you do is like, what did you do to your ceilings? Is that a wooden ceiling? Is it, you know, we, all, we always get these questions and these reactions. And um, in, our, in our office, which is on the highest floor, we have exposed ceilings. So what we did was that we designed the roofing system in a way that it could be exposed. And so uh, unfortunately, it was supposed to be pure wood. It just had that pure wood look. But because of uh, lack of understanding of how to treat wood and manage wood, which a lot of our carpenters have today because they've gotten so used to the imported MDF and MFC, we had to paint them. We had to finish it in a, a termite treatment. Uh, wooden treatment and then we now painted it again to protect it further and so with all these combined things it's a, it's a series of things another thing is the, the walls as well we used limestone finish for the walls again we came across the issues uh, concerning um, 
uh, artisanship where we don't have artisans who are trained to use these things and so we're experimenting everybody's opening youtube videos to try and find out okay how do we do lime plaster walls these are things that were natural here before but now we have to find out from somewhere else how to do them and so we use lime plaster walls now unfortunately we weren't able to use it in its pure state and leave it like that we had to finish it up with emulsion paint but just based on square meters alone, normally if you're painting a building of that size, you'd be spending about two to three million. We spent about 200,000 on that paint. Wow. Yes, so you can, the, the comparison is not, do you understand, it's not, it's something, it's really worth the, the, the effort and the sacrifice that we put into it. Of course, like I said, the limestone walls can actually be left exposed, but in this case, we had to finish it because it wasn't done properly. And that is uh, another thing that um, I'm currently involved in. I'm on the, um, the UIA uh, Heritage and Cultural Identity work group. And one thing that we discussed there was that we have to talk about capacity building. We have to talk about training. If we want to actually maintain uh, heritage, we want to actually you know, involve or um, imbibe cultural identity in our buildings, we have to make the young architects from school in practice understand it can be done this is how it can be done and you know it is possible to do it not only in you know personal builds but actually in commercial buildings which uh, as we have found only adds value which is that around us people are renting the spaces per square meter at about between 25 to 30,000 naira per square meter we are renting ours from 40,000 per square meter and we have we are fully rented out Wow, okay. So that's, that's, that's greenhouse for you. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole lot of uh, officials and a whole lot of, you know, efforts to yes. ensure that, you know, it gets sustainable and also Afrocentric. I think before I go to the second question, I, I will also ask uh, Madeli. So, because one of the major issues people have always been raising is, you know, a lot of time when we talk about training, the focus is usually on um, professionals. But you also find that, you know, the final effect or the final output of a building has a lot to do with the artisans themselves. So a lot of time we talk about training, we are not talking about how to train the artisans as well. So how do you think we can also bridge that gap? Or perhaps if our CPJ also has any okay. any me, any program for that, yeah. Let me answer yeah. that, that's, that's a good one. And it ties into everything that, like we just said. So first of all, I want to say that, again, like I said, Lafay is a super Afrocentric architect. She was. She already had it in her. <laughs> she already had it in her DNA. We met, right? She already had it. We met. We talked. We engaged, and Lakme did what, you know. Lakme, you know, I continue to take my hat off. Lakme did what. Um, oh my God! If we could all do, she believed, and then she put her money where her mouth was. She built an African-inspired building. She went through the process, right? And everything that she learned in that process is what we need, all of us need today to understand. Okay, you talk about Afrocentric architecture. Okay, have you done one? Do you know what it takes? Can anybody, does anybody have the skills? Is it affordable? Can you maintain it? What's that yeah. experience? What's that, that process? Lakbe has been through it. Now we can all go to Lakbe and she will set up her classes and we will learn from her what it actually means to try and bring in the artisans, right? People who may have been masters in it at one point, but because nobody was calling them to give them the work, 
they stopped doing it and they went to go and do this other conventional stuff, cement blocks and whatever else. Yes. Who wants to hire them to say, okay, no, come and do the traditional one, tweak it mm. so it fits in into the city or whatever, or come and do it, I have a job for you, so that they can bring those skills back out and apply them and master them and teach other people. When people see lab-based yeah. building, they're going to call her and say, that is beautiful, that stands out from all the other ones that are right next to it. I want you to do something for me because I love what you've done. I love how yeah. you have celebrated my culture in this building, right? So yeah. again, Lagbe, her story when we're all going to be there in that class, okay? Yeah. <laughs> we're all going to be there because um, her journey was priceless, right? Um, and so, and so that's just my answer. You yeah, and if you'd allow me to butt in. Uh, yes, yes. I, I have to say for me you know it was full circle for me coming back to teach a class at CPDI because yes like you said I had always had it in my DNA I'd always imagined what it would be like but meeting you you know just sort of you know how it is when you're almost um, it's almost a spiritual experience and you're like yes preach preach you know and I hearing, hearing <laughs> you speak hearing your story was so inspiring it was so inspiring for me but you know even after that, I did some training in sustainability, energy efficiency. But my frustration always was like, where is the local content? I don't want to hear how it's done in Germany. I don't want to hear how it's done, you know, uh, in US. I want to find out how I can do it here. How can I claim energy efficiency when I'm importing my insulation from, you know, Poland? Like, how is that going to work? How can you really call it sustainable? And so that was interesting to me that. You know, green is not necessarily sustainable. Sustainable is not always cheap. Uh, energy efficiency does not necessarily mean sustainable either. And it was really important for me to differentiate those things. And another thing I learned, actually, I joined uh, one of CPDI's classes, uh, I believe, was it beginning of this year or last year? Uh, African was Sustainable African Architecture. One thing I learned was that, well, one thing that um, sort of like uh, came together for me was just the understanding that in fact African building is sustainable. We are only literally having this fed back to us again. This is the way to be sustainable. No, no, no. You took it from us. We're telling you again, this is the way to be sustainable. Do you understand? And it's just for us to now be able to see it from the imported lights where it's attractive to them, so it's attractive to us which is unfortunate, but that is just the way things are. So for me, coming from, you know, being inspired by Madly, going back to say, look, it's not enough. I need to, I'm tired of speaking this uh, Terenchi. We say it, Hauta. I'm tired of speaking this. I'm tired, I'm tired of talking about it. I started a PhD again. I said, I'm tired of academia. I don't want, I want to actually see this thing done like. I want to experience it. I want to understand it. I want to believe it can be done. Otherwise, it just it's just like empty for me. So I'm very, very happy to have done that full circle. So I've had that experience. And then I'll be able to go back to Madini and CPD Africa and say, okay, look, I took what you, you inspired in me. I took what you taught me. I've gone and done it. I've come back and I even have the chance to teach others as well. 
fantastic. Okay, yeah, that's that's great. So I believe when it comes to artisan training, of course, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done, and it can start from us here, you know. But our little efforts can now begin to also expand, and you know, through that we can begin to revive, you know, the whole local practices when it comes to and bringing it down to the artisan level. But then I also have one last question, which has to do. Initially, I've asked uh, Madeli about how to fast track, you know, infusing Afrocentrism into the education system, their curriculum, and all that. But now, when we come to the public, uh, to the public sector, you know, in the previous section, the previous session, someone mentioned that one of the ways to make our cities more Afrocentric is to ensure that public projects are mandated to have a whole lot of Afrocentric features. So how yep. best do you think we can drastically increase the implementation of Afrocentrism on public projects and also on tourism and even hospitality projects all the way to the city level so that, you know, when you walk across our, our urban environments, they can actually reflect that, okay, these are African cities. How best do you think we can fast track that? For me, um, unfortunately, it takes a lot of uh, time and effort, which is, in my own case, is by joining, joining communities and uh, working on the advocacy, we use uh, AD Connect, that is Architects and Designers Connect, our workshop and seminars for capacity building, for indigenous capacity building. We use that a lot to push out that message. And we do have a, a like-minded community that is also pushing out those things. And I honestly, I've had this satisfaction where people come in for an event or a workshop or seminar, and they go back and they rethink their practices. They rethink their design uh, principles and they start to apply them. They make an effort, they're like, okay, do you know what? I understand that it's difficult considering the Nigerian clan, blah, blah, but I'm going to make an effort. Since I was able to learn from this architect that spoke on AD Connect or that designer that spoke on AD Connect, let me try a little bit. And you find they make small headways here and there, which just is in furtherance of our, of our objectives. Now, if you want to take this um, for it to be a, on a societal level, we need the government. It is true, it's unfortunate, it's a fact. We need the government. We need the government to actually see the value of what we're doing. Now, one of the things I learned by being on this uh, heritage and cultural identity of, of the UIA is that um, we are probably the only country that did not have or does not have a, uh, it's called um, it's a cultural conservation uh, organization, CCO. So I found wow. that almost all the member countries, we had uh, about uh, 26 or 27 member countries, every single person there had either been part of or headed or was currently a member of a CCO, which is cultural conservation organization of, of different types. Some of them are in, you know, and the monuments. I remember that Madly did something with the uh, heritage and monuments, if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago. Some of them are in, uh, uh, what they call them, UN habitats. So, you know, but there's actually active organizations whose job it is in the government to preserve and conserve our heritage. Now, we may have found this, okay, UN habitat was able to name, I believe it was the Oshun Grove as a World Heritage Site. So there's attention on it. Again, we are looking for outside to come and tell us what is good inside. So there's not attention on it. There's funding for it. There's conservation going on there. We have so much that we're losing on a daily basis. 
We have buildings that are being pulled down in Lagos, Kaduna, Enugu, these old cities that had those wonderful, wonderful buildings. I traveled to Morocco, um, I think some time this year, and one of the first things that you notice is that they literally preserve everything. They have the old quarter, they have the French quarter, they had the Italian quarter, they showed you where colonials of this particular descent lived for how many decades or for how many centuries before they were overthrown by complete preservation of the timeline that you can even see. And this is architectural. We are talking about so many levels of cultural preservation that has not happened. But for us, specifically architecture, without the support and the progressive push of the government, it is almost impossible. So our job now as non-governmental organizations or associations or you know initiatives like CPDI is to actually find ways to get these things into policies. How do we do that? We have to engage on, we have to start from the grassroots level. I think if you can convince your local government chairman to do a community center that looks Afrocentric, then maybe we can now push from there, go to the house of reps, get somebody to do um, their, 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 what they call it, what they call those things that those house of reps people do in their communities. Constituency projects. Yes. Let them do their constituency projects in an Afrocentric way. So we have to keep on pushing, pushing, pushing. But until we get that regulation from government, we can't push, we can't get it done. And until we, it's accepted on the governmental level, it is hard to put, to, to let it uh, pizza down to the masses. Because if I go and I saw that, see that every secretariat in Nigeria is built in this Afrocentric way, looks Afrocentric, has cultural identity, it's only a matter of time before it starts filtering down to all the buildings beneath that on a different level and then going down all the way into housing and estates and things like that. But the other way around, it makes it look eccentric. Okay, this person uh, just has a feeling they want to do something traditional. Ah, he's a Hausa man, that's why he did Hausa this thing. Oh, he's a Yoruba man, that's why he did. Do you understand? Before it now gets yes. to, oh, okay, public buildings, before it gets to commercial buildings, before it gets to government buildings. So it has to go the other way around. We literally have to get our government not to be able to build anything unless it has cultural identity. And in like other countries, yeah, even in other countries, yeah, sorry, Madly, in other mm -hmm. countries, it is still the government that is pushing it. They are still the ones pushing mm -hmm. those standards and sustainability requirements. Uh, Madly, please come in. Yeah, no, like, sorry for jumping in there like that, but no, no, everything no, you're saying, fine. you're on point. When you say the government and, and specifying that, yes, my one example that I normally give is the one from Ethiopia. Some years ago, I was wondering why there were so many Ethiopian architects entering our competitions, only to find out that they were using us uh, as a test, right? So what their government had said was, no architect will get his building approval when they submit their designs, unless they can prove mm. that there is some cultural retention, heritage preservation oh, wow. in that floor plan. I'm telling you. So when they made that wow. mandate, all the architects and especially the students were like, oh, when they found out about CPDI and CPDI was asking for Afrocentric designs, they said, well, let us mm. try this out. This is where we can test our skills and all that. And they started sending us so many designs. So the government, yes. And this is what I was saying, you know, a conscious decision, um, the academy, changing the curriculums. If you, I mean, the curriculums, you know, schools, institutions, they are quasi-governmental. If the government will support mm. us, yeah? Um, so when an architect takes his design to development control to get to building permits, they will say yes. Um, that's one. The other is in private sector. If you could have mm. galleries and restaurants and shopping malls and museums mm. say that 
they want their architecture to be Afrocentric. Um, tourism, hotel tourism, that's number one. Mm. If you had amazing structures, people will come from all around the world to see what you're doing. Yes. To, yeah. So there is value, you know, there yeah. is profit to be made. It's not even something that when we, we keep on saying this thing, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to lose money because you want to be Afrocentric. It's not, it's not, a, it's a win-win. And you know, along this line that you're talking about, you know, I talked about Marrakesh and how every single building is the same color. That's a government directive. The government said, we want all our buildings to look like mud buildings. We want them to look like clay buildings or wood. And so Marrakesh has this entire city that is clay colored, that is terracotta. You are not allowed to use a different color. If you want to get inside your house and paint it red, that's your business. But for outside, though, it has to be clear and terracotta. And forget <laughs> the tourism. I mean, Morocco, half of their, this thing is tourism. They were really hit by COVID because tourism is one of their major uh, sources of uh, um, revenue. So like she's saying, that is really just it. it the thing is that we, only, we can only benefit from it. But to get someone to see beyond the short term, if you get a government official, to get a government um, parastatal, to see beyond that short term is very, very difficult. Yeah, so it's been quite a, I mean, a lot of insights from the board of you. And um, you know, we've talked around both the practical, I mean, the industry and the academic side of things. At this point, I, I normally have asked this two random questions. So mm -hmm. the question I have for you is, what's your favorite Afrocentric movie of all time? And why? Perhaps it might not be the best, but of course, <laughs> your... and I know where you're going with this. Before I, before I land with that answer, and actually it's a very long answer, and the answer actually starts today. My favorite Afrocentric film content makers are the bloggers and vloggers and YouTube personalities that are showing Africa, the Africa that I see in my head, the Africa in my dreams. They're showing it. That Africa actually exists. So let me give you their names. Number one is Wodemaya, who is Ghana baby. You might know him already. He's from Ghana. Um, yeah, and the other one you have, okay. And then um, Tayo Aino out of Lagos. Okay. I follow the two of them. They make me happy. I spent all morning watching Ghana baby today. These guys are going around and filming our continent. Amazing landscapes great architecture, incredible entrepreneurs, people who are doing things. They're showing the stories that we don't see on film, in the media, whatever, because media only shows, it's unfortunate, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's negative and depressing, that's what we'll see on TV. These guys are on their own financing film. They're financing the stories that I believe in and, and I want to watch. And I cannot wait till we have all kinds of architecture all around the continent and the diaspora that these guys will feature. So I'd say follow Ghana, maybe if you're not following, what am I a hi? I'm gonna meet you one day. And Tayo, thank you so much for responding to my all my Instagram. I'm gonna meet you too. Um, and we're gonna have some great work to showcase. Onyema, what you wanted to hear was Black Panther, <laughs> Wakanda. And yes, I love it. I love it. I want to see part two. I hope they feature some fantastic Afrocentric architecture. I hope they do. We've been trying to reach them and I know that they know us. 
but um, I hope they really represent what we think we want to see in our built environment um, very well in their next movie. So let's see. Okay, that's great to hear. And of course, it, it goes a long way to show that it doesn't always have to be, you know, the grand movies. It's it's all about promoting the culture and uh, the continent yeah. in general. Yeah. So, um, since Akelope is not here, I think I'll just throw a question at you as well, so that you answer on our behalf before we round up. <laughs> okay. And I was going, I was about to ask her what her favorite African city is. I mean, where the favorite African city and why. So I, I believe you've, you've traveled around Africa. So which of the African cities will you say is your favorite? Way to, way to. Okay, well, right now, right now, only because it is the only other, and I shouldn't say that on, on um, out for the whole world to hear, Miss Cpedia Africa. Um, Ghana, I was there last year and Onyema, I tell you, I kept asking, I was like, am I in Africa? Oh. oh my God. Yes. That's how I felt about Ghana. I felt I was in Jamaica, I don't know, somewhere. I loved it. I can't wait to go back. I went with, went with my brother. Ghana is like head of the game for West Africa. Polite, clean, friendly. I could go on and on and on. One of the um, I am Hamamat and her shea butter business, gorgeous. Ghanaians are doing things and their government is, is opening the door and welcoming people and encouraging their own people to invest. Fantastic. Um, Lape might say Morocco, just because I know she just recently came back and she <laughs> had a blast. So she might say Morocco, I don't know. But I am heading to Morocco next. That's where I'm heading next. Okay, that, that's great. I've never been to Morocco as well, but I've, um, I've also not been to Ghana as well, but I look forward to visiting all these places very soon. So, yeah, yes. so obviously there are also, I believe there are also a lot of cities across Africa that probably we've not even visited and also been able to experience what their culture is like. Yeah, 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 yeah one by one. I think it's 54 countries or so, then you add the diaspora. It means you have to try and hit two or three every year to cover them. <laughs> and that's my plan. So, Onima, let's do it. Let's try. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that as well. Good. All right. So, we are already a bit behind time. So, at this point, I would like to thank you and also Atelape for all your insights and contributions. Of course, all these are out of years of experience and uh, knowledge that have been built over time so it's really a pleasure to have you both at the same time thank you all once again and thank you very much man i don't know if you have any parting words for everybody before you before we round up ah parting words if you are a designer or a creative and you have been watching this show please please dig into your culture dig into your identity please bring it out express it see how you can contribute your culture's voice to the built environment is so important. Heritage preservation, it truly is everything, right? We are here and the creator didn't make a mistake when he made your people, your culture. So celebrate it um, and share it with CPDI. So go to cpdiafrica.org, connect with us, all our social media handles, reach out to me. Let's work together. Um, that's my shout out. Thanks, Onyema. Yeah, so thank you very much. So, of course, if you have any other things, you can always get in touch with her. She's always available on LinkedIn, so you can get in touch with her to learn more about how you can participate and also share the knowledge. 
as an underexposed market, Africa's Story Podcast series aims to bring the African market to the forefront. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to click the subscribe button from whatever platform you tune in. Also, visit www.blazeme.com www.blazemy.com to access our other content. You can also check out my page www.onyema.me www.onyema.me to access my other content. To support a future episode of this podcast, you can reach us at hello at blazeinc.net hello at blazeinc.net Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blaze Podcast. I'll see you in some other episode.